I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. Take a moment and Google July 1969, and what comes up? Over 7 million entries, most of which are related to the first landing on the moon by the crew of Apollo 11. Armstrong is on the moon. Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. That's one small step for man. On July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong completed President John F. Kennedy's dream of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. In that fleeting moment, billions of people on Earth stopped and became one. One people standing in awe at what humans could do if they put their minds to it. But beneath the headline, beneath the technical wizardry that made the event a reality, the Earth seemed to be spinning off its axis. Wars raged on. Protesters filled the streets, standing in unison demanding equal rights, protection of the environment, and ending the Vietnam War. It was a month when pop culture was dramatically changing who we were then and who we are now. I'm Joe Buck from Texas. Enrico Rizzo from the Bronx. Go. Hey! I'm walking here! I'm walking here! In the year 2525, if man is still alive, if woman can This is July 1969, the month when Everyone had gone to the moon. I'm Joe Kuhai. Episode 1, Independence Day. Hi everyone and welcome to the Everyone's Gone to the Moon podcast. This podcast is a supplemental to my brand new book, under the same title, that's a week-by-week journey through the historic month of July 1969. The book goes beyond the headlines of Apollo 11 to tell of events that went under the radar, those little-remembered, obscure, and offbeat stories of the day, as well as the major headlines that made us who we were then and who we are now. It tells the story about the pop culture that was changing the face of art, music, theater, and movies, and paints a picture of what everyday life was like on Earth during that historic month. In this series, we'll bring some of those stories to life with audio clips, as well as provide brand new supplemental material that doesn't appear in the book. And we begin on the 4th of July, 1969. Independence Day in America, a day set aside to celebrate the birth of the nation. It was a hot but not unpleasant 4th of July in 1969. 
In major cities across America, children played in fire hydrants that were intentionally left open to allow them to cool down. Families who could afford it escaped their suburban homes and flocked to lakes and oceanside beaches for a much-needed holiday from their job and a respite from the heat. For most of the country, in towns big and small, it was a time of celebration with fireworks, barbecues, and parades. Free valves open. Roger, As the celebrations continued, at the same time on the beaches of Cape Kennedy, Florida, a mighty rocket stood poised in the morning sun, ready to take humankind to another world for the first time. But on July 4, 1969, America was at a crossroads. It seemed the fabric that held the country together was being stretched, strained, and tested, and the meaning of the word independence was being redefined. In black communities across the country, Independence Day meant something quite different. So many black people in America have always had an uh, interesting view on Fourth of July. I don't necessarily look at it as my holiday. There was no independence for African Americans. I don't necessarily celebrate the Fourth of July. We were never free and or equal. The man who broke the color barrier in baseball in 1947, Jackie Robinson, told a reporter for the New York Times, quote, I wouldn't fly the flag on the 4th of July or any other day. When I see a car with a flag pasted on it, I figure the guy behind the wheel isn't my friend. In Harlem and in urban centers across the country, instead of the American flag, the red, green, and black flag of the flag for all African people hung from windows. An African-American speaker at a gathering in New York City told a reporter that the colors of the flag had specific meaning, saying that the red was for the blood blacks had shed, black was for their blackness, and green was for their homeland. Those feelings were the basis for the mission statement of the Black Panther Party, or BPP, an organization with an ideology of black nationalism, socialism, aiding black communities that were struggling, but when needed, the use of armed self-defense against police. You can read the platform and the program, and it's a basic program, and it simply says exactly what black people have been crying for for 400 years. One, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our own black communities. Two, we want full employment for our people. Three, we want decent housing for the shelter of human beings. Four, we want an end to the robbery of the black community by the white racist businessman. Five, we want decent education that teaches us about the true nature of this racist, decadent system. Education that teaches us about our true history and our role in society and the world today. In 1969, the Black Panthers were under the watchful eye of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. During his early career, Hoover popularized the image that FBI agents, or G-men, were gun-toting Avengers, taking down communist labor agitators, kidnappers, mobsters, even bank robbers. That image was buttressed with infamous shootouts between agents and the likes of John Dillinger and Lester Gillies, a.k.a. Babyface Nelson, in 1934. Hoover would often direct his agents to infiltrate and dismantle leftist union and political organizations by unique and often dubious methods, including burglary, inciting criminal activity, secret wiretaps, and planting false evidence. As July 1969 rolled around, the agency was determined to use those same tactics to dismantle the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers are recruiting criminals, 
and hoodlums and encouraging them to engage in a broad range of terrorist activities. They are the greatest threat to the internal security of this country. We want to make it clear to black youth that if they want to be revolutionaries, they will be dead revolutionaries. That's actor Bruce Moody portraying Hoover in a 2007 film workshop production of an opera that was based on the Black Panther Party and produced by the Oakland Opera Theater in California. That quote, that the Black Panther Party was the greatest internal threat facing the U.S., came from the agency's annual report that was released by Hoover in July 1969. The FBI began bugging the Panthers' telephone communications, had agents infiltrate party meetings, and disseminated material throughout communities across America, smearing the Black Panthers. And now, while there was a radical side to the Black Panthers, there was also another side, one that provided much-needed social programs to black communities such as legal aid, adult education classes, and screening for sickle cell anemia. In January 1969, the Panthers initiated a brand new program in Oakland, California, the Free Breakfast for School Children program. Uh, they used to serve cookies and uh, I think graham crackers and milk in the morning uh, to, to uh, children uh, in primary school who had the money to pay for it. And if you didn't have the money to pay for it, you had to put your head on the desk until the other kids uh, finished eating. I always thought that was uh, very bad, but at the Oakland Community School, everybody eats. Party leaders and volunteers would solicit donations from local grocery stores of nutritious breakfast foods, including eggs, cereal, milk, and fruit. Then prepare the meals and serve them for free to school children in the community. My school serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner because sometimes your mother or father or whoever you're living with probably don't have enough food for you. Some of the people who serve food are teachers. The program was a huge success. The children's alertness, willingness to learn, and ability to absorb the material being taught to them was measurable, and the program quickly spread to other major cities across the country. While the program was a huge success to Hoover, the free breakfast program was a breeding ground for radicalism and was a means of grooming students into becoming new members of the Panthers. Hoover directed his men to put an end to the program. The agency began to send anonymous literature throughout the communities where the free breakfast program was being established that denounced the program and the Black Panthers. Similar counterintelligence measures were used to try and thwart the establishment of the program in New York City where the Panthers were set to use the All Saints Roman Catholic Church as a site for the city's first children's breakfast program. Anti-Black Panther literature was circulated throughout the community, stressing what the FBI called the true feelings and attitudes of the Black Panthers. Agents made personal contact with members of the nearby Mosque No. 7 Church and stressed to the congregation that there may be some violence once the Catholic Church, quote, takes exception to their facilities being used to dispense the white man's food to black children. Agents also made it a point to mention that the food donated for the breakfast program may have been obtained through extortion, but it was too late. The success of the Black Panther Party to feed impoverished children was so successful that it overwhelmed the efforts by Hoover and the FBI, and the agency was forced to back down. 
So successful was the program that state and local governments started picking up and running with their own programs. Cities like Chicago began diverting federal funding for other projects to their own local version of the program. And before long, the federal government's Child Nutrition Act was expanded to include free breakfasts and lunches to poor school children across the country. Booster 2 attitude, S4B, Oxpop off. Roger, Oxpop off. Meanwhile, at Cape Kennedy, the crew and equipment that would land Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon was being readied for launch. The once sleepy fishing village of Cocoa Beach, Florida, was beginning to buzz with excitement as store owners began stocking shelves with souvenir trinkets for the upcoming launch and prepping for the estimated one million people who would be piling into town. Ralph Johansson and his son, who are with me here, came across Florida last night. Did you do this because to be close to history is to be a part of history? Yes, I felt it was a dramatic point in history, and uh, I wish them the best of luck up there. Bob Ryan, who is with me here, has hitchhiked from Torrance, California. No, 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 Morris. <laughs> I hitchhiked from Miami. <laughs> oh, I thought you'd come from Torrance. Well, I got you wrong. This is Carol Ewell. You kind of came across the road since you, you go to college here. What, what brought you here to the beach today? Well, I just came to watch it. I thought it would be interesting to tell my children that I actually saw it go off. That you were, in a sense, actually here and actually a part of it. Yes, sir. Well, a long time ago, an, an English critic said we couldn't ever have another dream of Jacob's Ladder, of angels climbing up and down to heaven, that the world had gotten too big, it had gotten astronomical, the universe. Does the moon seem strange and far away to you? No, not really. There's things further out than the moon. Pressure on the astronaut office to give the press more access to the crew of Apollo 11 increased daily before launch day. Office manager and former Mercury astronaut Deke Slayton asked NASA officials if they really believed they needed to hard sell the first landing on the moon to the public. Eventually, Slayton relented and allowed more opportunities for the press to interact with the astronauts, just as long as it didn't interfere with crew training. On July 5th, the crew of Apollo 11 met the press on a stage inside of a plastic box that helped protect them from any germs and illness that could cancel the flight. Neil Armstrong was a very quiet, reserved man who would rather not be grilled by the press. Torian of the Swedish Broadcasting. In the lighter way here, uh, you're now taking the trip of all trips of mankind. Can I ask each one of you, which place would you like to go to for a vacation when you come back to Earth? Well, I, I think that the situation being what it is now, the place I would most like to go immediately is the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. <laughs> the press got the message and a chuckle from the insinuation. And now, a footnote to history. It was on July 4th, 1969, that 20th Century Fox producer Daryl Zanuck was pacing the floor. The reason? the release of his $24 million widescreen Technicolor musical extravaganza Hello Dolly was put on hold. The movie, which starred Barbara Streisand and Walter Matthau, was the screen version of the incredibly successful Broadway play that starred Carol Channing, which opened on Broadway in 1964. Now, the reason Zanuck was pacing the floor was a clause in the contract that gave the studio rights to produce the film. It was a clause that was first introduced by famed mystery writer Agatha Christie. Following the success of her play, Witness for the Prosecution, Christie penned another mystery drama called The Mousetrap. The play opened on November 25, 1952 in London's Ambassador Theatre. 
the play was an immediate smash hit, and only weeks after its premiere, film producer Edward Small arrived and inked a deal to make the play into a movie, hoping to have it hit the big screen the following year. Well, the astute Christie, knowing that her play would be a big success and have a long run, wrote in the contract a clause that the film version could not be made until the original play had run its course. Unfortunately for Small, the play would run for 17 years. As of July 1969, the curtain had opened on the play 8,000 times and was showing no signs of ever closing. The bill from the interest alone on the loan Small had taken out to produce the movie was growing exponentially by the minute. The movie version of Hello Dolly faced that same situation with the same clause being written into the contract with 20th Century Fox. Now fortunately for Zanuck, it didn't take 17 years before the play closed down. And in December 1969, the movie hit the big screen, eventually winning three Academy Awards. I'm Joe Kuhai, and thank you for joining me for this edition of Everyone's Gone to the Moon. Special thanks this week go out to the website Life, Live, Inspire, Fight, CBS News, NASA, the Oakland Opera Theater, and the National Archives for clips heard in today's episode. You can learn more about the events and pop culture that shaped our world in my new Prometheus book, Everyone's Gone to the Moon, July 1969, Life on Earth, and the Epic Voyage of Apollo 11. It's available now at your favorite local bookstore or online retailer. Now, if you like this episode, then please share it with a friend. I would appreciate that. You can view clips from today's episode, learn more about the book, my other titles, and you can even drop me a line by visiting my website, joe-kuhai.com. And Kuhai is spelled C-U-H-A-J. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you next time.